Before we get into it, I have a couple of things to bring to your attention. First of all, good news. Next week, we are going to be in the new space for the kids. So once again, thank you for your tremendous patience with that, but that'll be uh, next week. Secondly, I want to let you know that the last three Sundays, and I'm certain including this Sunday as well, they've actually been our largest attended services in our church's seven-year history. So having said that, yeah, by the grace of God... Having said that, let me say this. We are anticipating a pretty large crowd for the Christmas Eve services. We've got five of them. If you can, we're thinking that the Christmas Eve Eve services are probably gonna be our lightest. So if you can attend those, that would, uh, that would help free up space on Christmas Eve day. Uh, make whatever uh, your friends and family can make, first and foremost. That's the most important thing, that you would invite them to come. We've always said don't say no for somebody else. This is the time of year where in the midst of it being, uh, Christmas has become a massive secular holiday. People perhaps now, as much as any other time in human history, are looking for some kind of answers and solution, especially in light of all that's going on in the world. Well, that's what we provide. So secondly, it's going to take an army of people to help us pull this off. So we're, we're coming at this with a different approach uh, this year. And I mentioned a little bit about it last week. But what we're asking the entire church family to do, that is those of you who call Illuminate your home, we're asking you to help us host Christmas Eve services. In other words, we need you, we need you. Um, if you've ever experienced a gathering at your house, you've hosted maybe Christmas or Easter or whatever kind of gathering with your friends and family, you realize that not everything may go perfect. You know, the turkey may be a little dry, but who cares? Nobody thinks about that after the fact because what they remember is they remember the warmth of that experience. People remember how they were treated, especially our guests. So what we wanna do is offer what we have that is distinctly Christian and unique, and again, I think what the world needs now as much as ever, the warmth of Jesus Christ. And so we have this plan to make an incredible first impression for all those who come through our doorstep, but this is where we need you to help us host. See what I'm saying? To help us host. So it starts from when the tires enter the parking lot to the time the tires leave the parking lot. Helping us greet people as they come, helping people find their seats, helping people with the hospitality, with the food that we serve, uh, with the kids. There's just a lot going on. So if you think of this as your house, now that we have the lobby space done, the kids, everything is buttoned up. So God is really, he's just given us a lot. And so we want to leverage that for his kingdom. So as you leave, there's a little sign out in the lot that says something like help us host or be a host or something like that. If you just stop by there and if you have any questions about that, they can give you more information on how you can participate with us. In the meantime, certainly be praying and again, inviting your friends and family. You can go to our website for all the information. You can pass that along too. You'll, you'll uh, see more stuff through our social media uh, this week as well, all right? And, and do, please be praying for that. So uh, today is the second week of Advent and our Advent theme is love. And one of the grand meta-narratives throughout the entire Bible 
is found in what I think is probably the most popular verse in the entire Bible, and that is John 3, 16. It's popular for a reason. You might be familiar with it. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave. In other words, right away you understand that God is a giver. Well, what is it that he gave? Well, useful gifts, as we'll talk about in a moment, are uh, among our most prized possessions. Things that are useful and things that are costly. That's what makes a gift so special. Okay, keep that in mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, this is gonna be a little different take on this Advent theme of love because what I'm suggesting to you is that Christmas actually started way before Bethlehem. Way before Bethlehem. In fact, the Christmas story actually started in the Garden of Eden. You might be familiar with it. God creates this unbelievable environment and he declares it good, a literal paradise on earth. And then the crown jewel of all his perfection, of all that God creates, there's only one thing created in his image, man and woman. Animals are not created in his image, but only man and woman are created in the image of God, placed at the pinnacle of all his creation, placing them in this unbelievably rich environment, everything they need and more. And because God wants to have a genuine relationship, he lays down one simple command. You see that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stay away from it. Because if you mess with it, it's gonna be really bad for you. Why would God give this restriction? Well, the answer is simple. And you know this to be true in your own relationships. If you wanna have a genuine, real, deep, authentic relationship with another person, it has to be built on trust. And so this is God's way of saying, just trust me, just take me at my word and things will go really well for you. Well, the rest of the story unfolds. There's this crafty serpent that enters the scene. God had given mankind dominion over creation, but he gave up that authority. And so this creature begins to talk and tell a different story the most easily believable lives are the ones that have a little, little tinge of the truth to them, and so that's what he brings. He deceives Adam and Eve. They choose not to trust God and his word as being good. And that's when this, this little three-letter word enters into the picture. You don't hear it very often today, but you experience it every day, and it's sin. The world is broken, it's fractured, it's scarred, but more to the point, the relationship between God and Adam and Eve is also broken. Trust is broken. You can't have a healthy relationship unless it's built on trust. Trust has been broken. So this is a big problem that needs, that needs to be corrected. And there's only one being that can correct it, and that is God himself. And so God begins to bring this plan of redemption that is, in effect, the Christmas story, but in figurative and literal seed form. Okay, so after the great deception takes place, God has a few words for everybody involved. Genesis chapter three, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, now because you have done this, you're cursed. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
And then the languaging gets really interesting and, and rich, and we'll unpack this in a second, but let's read it. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I wanna highlight two things. First, the word enmity literally means opposition. There's a couple different oppositions happening here, according to what we read. First, there's opposition between the woman and the serpent. I don't know too many women to this day that love snakes, okay? So that seems to have played itself out even to this day, right? But secondly, says there's enmity or opposition between the offspring of a woman and the offspring of Satan. Now, this is where it's getting really interesting. What's going on there? What's he talking about? Well, let's draw back the lens for a second. You read the entire Bible and you realize something pretty cool. It's really interesting. You know, the world has, has, is wanting to elevate all these different things to try to separate people today. The Bible puts everybody into one of two categories, essentially one of two families. Number one, there are those who say, I need God. I need God in my life. And the path to having God in my life is, John three sixteen through God's son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came, to restore the rights that were wrong. There's more to that than you know. We'll get there in a second. The offspring of a woman will be at odds with the offspring of Satan. So there's these two families, those who say, I need God, and then there are those who say, I don't, not really interested. What that means is you will be your own God, okay? Everybody worships something or someone, even if it's yourself, okay? And what's interesting is that it was actually Satan who was the first to say, I don't need God. Children act like their parents. That's why there are these two families. So you will then act accordingly. Your life will then unfold according to your belief on whether or not you need God in your life. Those who obey God, those who say, I don't need him. I don't don't obey anybody but myself. Okay, fine. Those are the two families. Now, this enmity between the offspring of a woman and the offspring of Satan, this is where the language gets really, really interesting. And this is where we see, we actually see the Christmas story in seed form. Because there were these these ancient prophets speaking about a forthcoming savior that would put right all that was wrong. And they referred to this forthcoming Messiah, savior, as the offspring of a woman. Now, if you read through the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 on, what we realize is that that's actually a reference to Jesus, And we know that because when the people who were closest to Jesus begin to write their biographies about his life, they talk about this. So there's this one guy named John. It's called John the Beloved. Very, very close. Perhaps Jesus' best friend. How do we know? Well, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks at John and says, hey, take care of my mom. Whoever you ask to take care of your mom, that's your good friend. You trust that guy. And so there's this guy, John. He writes about Jesus' life, having a front row seat to it. And he writes in a different way than, than the others, Matthew and Luke. They begin by telling you of gene, Jesus' genealogy or his lineage. And the why, reason why they do that is because Jews knew that the Messiah would be from the line of David and, and Abraham. And so that's why that you get that genealogy, because they say, hey, if we're going to convince you that Jesus is the fulfillment, the one who is the offspring of a woman, if we're going to convince you that that's Jesus, then you need to know his lineage. It fits. That's Matthew and Luke. 
John does something different. He gives you a kind of lineage, but it's not human. It's supernatural. And then he goes on and he explains the why. Why did Jesus come? And he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is all the language of Genesis, by the way. He's taking the reader back to Genesis. That's why I said Genesis contains the seed story of Christmas. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. This is John telling you that in the Garden of Eden, Jesus was there. This enmity or opposition between the offspring of a woman, Jesus, and the offspring of Satan. Now, who is that? Well, that turns out to be Satan himself. Again, reading the rest of the story, this uh, phrase bruised to the head the offspring of a woman will deliver a bruise to the head of the offspring of Satan, and the offspring of Satan will deliver a bruise to the heel of the offspring of a woman. Here's what's being said. Back in the day, this phrase, a bruise to the head, was used to describe a contusion, like a brain swelling, okay? Uh, Like a very severe concussion, beyond a concussion, and would often lead to one's death. It was considered a fatal wound. So the offspring of the woman, that is Jesus, is gonna deliver a fatal blow to Satan. But Satan's gonna get his in too. It won't be a fatal blow, it will be a blow to the heel. That phrase was used to describe something, a pain, a wound that hurt bad, but it wasn't, it wasn't gonna lead to death. So again, you read through the rest of the Bible, and then this seed begins to sprout, and you see what is essentially what Christians refer to as the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Jesus suffers what appears to be a bruise to the head. It appears to be fatal because he's crucified. But it turns out it's just a bruise to the heel because three days later he comes back from the dead. There's a reason why Christians are so hung up on the resurrection. If the resurrection did not take place, the Bible is very candid and says, Christian, you should be pitied. (laughs) You are so naive for believing in a lie. Fact of the matter is there's more evidence surrounding the historical person of Jesus and his resurrection than just about any other event in history. Check it out. If Jesus was raised from the dead, that means he has power over death. Therefore, he can extend it to those he wants to. That's why Christians are hung up on the resurrection. So what appeared to be a blow to the head actually ended up being a blow to the foot, not fatal. However, Again, read the rest of the story, and what you realize is the offspring of a woman will deliver a fatal blow to Satan in the course of time. Hasn't happened yet, but will in the future. Now, of all the ways that God could begin this rescue story, he does so in a way that is absolutely unique. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning, he was with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. And so how do we know exactly that he's talking about Jesus? Drop down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That word glory means something weighty or profound, but it also, the word glory, it's used to describe that which you manifest about yourself. So if you walk around and you're always bitter, thou, this person's bitter, that's your glory. This person is so kind, that's that person's glory. So what they're saying is when, when we were around Jesus, he took on human flesh and it's like, whoa, man, it's like this guy is the reflection of God. That's his point. 
we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, and Jesus was full of grace and truth. Man, this is so good. You, Christian, have to, these two things have to go together. Christians always speak the truth because truth brings clarity. And I'm gonna tell you something. Speaking the truth clearly in this culture is the ultimate act of kindness. Truth, clarity equals kindness. But it must be delivered with grace. That's what makes your truth acceptable. Jesus was full of it, both grace and truth. So God becomes flesh, that's what he's saying, okay? Um, This is what theologians refer to as the incarnation. The word carne means what? Meat. I'm not really a fan of Black Friday or Cyber Monday, but I do like Taco Tuesday. (laughs) You with me? Taco Tuesday, amen. It's in the Bible. I love carne asada. What is it? Meat, flesh, the incarnation. God would take human form. Okay, this is worth a lifetime's worth of pondering. Why would God do that? Why? Because God wanted to speak to man in a way he would understand clearly. And so that man would understand God's heart. My daughter and I were visiting the 9-11 memorial. This was several years ago, so I'm not sure that this exhibit is still there today, but it is incredibly sobering. There were phones hanging on the wall. You could pick it up and you could listen to actual recordings of people attempting to reach their loved ones in the building. That'll get you. It's gut-wrenching. And you can just hear the desperation in the voice of someone speaking to their loved one. They believe it's probably the last time. And I thought, you know, Is this not the heart of God? So very desperate to reach mankind in the midst of what is so often dark, desperate, lonely, and isolated. And when God makes his attempt to reach mankind, he does so in the most unusual way, in the form of a baby. The baby is the least intimidating thing in the world. But God is communicating something even in that. Humility, God is approachable. Consider this. If God wanted to get humanity's attention, he could have used his booming voice. That'll get your attention. But he didn't. Why? Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher and theologian, brilliant guy. Spent a lot of time thinking about this. and, And he said, imagine a prince desiring to get married. And every day he rides his gold chariot through the city amongst the commoners on his way to his castle on the hill. One day while riding through the city, he catches the eye of a beautiful maiden. She's a peasant. He falls in love with her. He begins to think, how how can I 
marry this woman. Well, he could flex and show all of his wealth and power. He could show up and command her to be his wife, and all of that would have worked. But he wanted to have a real relationship with her, a marriage that was built on love, not coercion or manipulation or power. So he decides to do the unthinkable. He ditches his royal robes and takes on the appearance of a peasant, lives amongst them, works as a peasant. Eventually, he catches the girl's eye and she sees him as a man of integrity, he's compassionate and kind. She falls in love with him and they get married. And then only later does he reveal who he truly is. Why? Why did he do that? Well, he became as she was so that she could understand his heart for her. He became as she was so she could understand his true heart for her. And in many ways, that is the story of Jesus. He became like us so that we would understand who he is, but more so, uh, how he actually feels about us and the length he's willing to go through to be relatable to us. So he doesn't use this booming voice from on high. He comes lowly, meek, mild, gentle, and approachable. And God's love can be a really difficult thing for us to grasp because in our humanness, very often we withhold love from the people we say we love the most. We're not quick to initiate love, especially toward those that are unlovable. God was quick. We, we hold bitterness and grudges. And so even when love is shown to us, some of us, we think we're not worthy of love. So we withhold it. It's just a lot goes on. And so what God is doing through Jesus just shatters all of that. And it can be very, very difficult for us to understand. But, but let's, um, let's try. Let, 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 me, let me work on this with you a little bit. Um, I said earlier that the thing that makes a gift most precious is that it has two characteristics. Number one, it's useful. And number two, it's costly. So remember that as you receive something this year, you, you'll, you'll realize, wow, this person made a tremendous sacrifice in order to give me this gift. And then, and then when you receive that gift, you'll be like, this is really useful. That's what makes a gift precious. So um, when Jill and I were engaged, when I proposed to Jill, I had a friend, an older friend, who owned a jewelry store, custom jewelry store. And her name was Vicky. And she said, Jason, she said, I want you to send Jill to the jewelry store and I want her to pick out whatever wedding band she wants, and I'll give you a great deal. Okay, custom jewelry store. You know what I'm saying? You know where I'm going with this? And now, if you know anything about my wife, she's absolutely no frills woman, okay? Uh, she loves to bargain hunt, loves to bargain hunt, loves to bargain hunt. And so she goes to Vicky's shop, and it's the kind of place where the prices aren't listed. You know what I'm talking about? I don't do these places. You know what I'm saying? Um, custom jewelry shop. And so Jill, unknowingly, she picks out one of the most expensive wedding bands in the entire store. This is a custom jewelry store. Did I say that? 
Because it's one of the most expensive ones. It's beautiful. It's quality. Simple. Understated. But high quality. High quality. So she picks this out. And so Vicky says, here's the ring. I said, oh, great. And she says, here's what it costs. And I was like, hmm. She's like, don't worry, I'll give you a good deal. What's a good deal to you? This is a, cu- this is a custom jewelry shop. Have I said that yet? <laughs> and so she lays the price on me, and I was like, great. I'm young, I'm working two jobs, I'm an intern. I don't have a lot of money. And I bought it for her. Why? Well, I hope it does two things for her. Number one, the price was costly for me. And I hope that communicates the depth of my love for her and my willingness to make sacrifices on her behalf for what she wants, okay? Number two, I hope it's useful to her because I hope that it reminds her of my love for her. Useful and costly. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That sounds like it could be costly. More to the point, Paul identifies this in Romans chapter six. For the wages of sin is death, but the, notice the language, free gift that comes to you from God is eternal life. Where do we find that? It comes through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You just need to let that sink in for a minute. God has given you a gift that is extraordinarily useful, eternal life. Uh, I would bet that's the best gift you've ever received. And at the same time, it would come at great cost. It would cost the death of Jesus. That's why you really can't preach Christmas without preaching Easter at the same time. So here's the deal. In our humanness, sometimes the profound depth of the incarnation, it, it, it gets lost on us. And, and so what's helpful is that it's helpful sometimes to look at the lesser in order to understand the greater. There's a movie, uh, maybe some of you have seen it, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Really interesting movie. It's actually based on true events. It's the story of prisoners during World War II who were given the task of building this bridge. And there's an English captain by the name of Ernest Gordon. And he survived his time as a prisoner building this bridge. And he later he wrote a book about it. And he describes a specific incident that, uh, that changed everything. As they were building this bridge, life was very, very difficult, obviously, for the prisoners. So difficult that they started turning on one another and stealing food from each other. And so some prisoners were needlessly dying as a result of the greed of other prisoners, but it's kind of like, can you blame them? Everybody's just trying to stay alive. Very, very difficult conditions. Well, one day, the end of the day, one of the guards approached and said, there should be 20 shovels, and I'm only counting 19. So he lines up all the prisoners and he says, which one of you stole the shovel? If you don't come forward, I'm gonna shoot every single one of you. Which one of you stole it? Step forward. Nobody steps forward. 
The guard takes his gun, holds it up to the first guy's head and says, I'm gonna start with you. Almost immediately, one of the younger prisoners steps forward and says, it was me. I took it. Guard immediately took that kid, shot him, killed him. Hope you all learn your lesson, don't steal. If you're thinking about hiding a shovel somewhere and digging your way out, don't do it. A couple of days later, it was discovered that the guard had actually miscounted. Nothing was stolen. The prisoners in that moment realized something. What did that young man do? He sacrificed himself for everybody else. From that time on, the prisoners began sharing their food with each other. Now, I told this story in the first service, okay? Eight o'clock. Dude comes walking up to me, an older gentleman, right here. And he said, you know that guy you were talking about, Ernest Gordon? He mentored me. He mentored me. Here's the rest of the story. Ernest Gordon was not a believer in that camp until that event happened. And God used that event and another individual who had at that point decided, I'm a Christian, I need to start living like it as a prisoner. And it was that prisoner whose faith was reinvigorated that began sharing his food and that spread. And Ernest Gordon said, there must be a God. (laughs) And he came to faith in Christ as a result. That's the part of the story I didn't know. Now, that young soldier gave his life and it ended quickly. Jesus would give his life, but in the most horrific way. He's the only individual who's ever lived who knew what it would be like to die death by crucifixion, which is, it's just, it's horrific. It was meant to prolong human suffering. Consider this. If God made such a great sacrifice to save you, is there any greater need in your life and you're thinking God will not meet that? He has already met your greatest need. What is it? What is that need that you have? By the difference, there's a difference between a need and a want. What other need do you have that you think, well, God's certainly not gonna provide that? Okay, look at the sacrifice that was already made. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the what? Love. Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. I'll tell you what, as I get older, you know, your kids, your your spouse will ask you, what do you want for Christmas, dad? And it's like nothing. You don't need anything. You know, I have too much stuff already. What I've come to realize is the gifts I love the most are the ones I can share with the people I love. So at Christmas time, inevitably, they'll like I have some favorite snacks. And so the kids might get me some snacks. Well, those snacks are gone by the end of the night on Christmas Eve. You know why? They're eating them. It's for me. And I couldn't be happier. It's like, oh, I love this. And because I love it, and I love you, I wanna share it with you. You're gonna love it too. And I get to see the joy of your joy entering into my joy. If I love something, man, I'm gonna share that love. 
You see where I'm going with this? Perhaps the best expression of your understanding of the Christmas story is this. Are you sharing it? Are you sharing? So what does it mean? Well, maybe this is small space for you. Just dip your toes in now. Maybe for you, it's just allowing the people in your sphere of influence to, to know that you are a Christian, that you're a Christ follower. Maybe for you, you've been having a conversation, it's time for you to ratchet it up a little bit. Maybe for you, you've never served before in any capacity. You've come, you've sat, you soak, you sit, you soak in church, you're gonna sour, you gotta give back. It's like that gnarly little sponge that sits on your kitchen, right? right? That thing just stays wet, it never gives out, and all of a sudden it starts to stink really bad. That's you, Christian. <laughs> Be careful. You meant to give, bless others, okay? You're welcome for the opportunity. You should be serving, okay? What is that? That's an expression of love. So I, I don't know how the Spirit of God has, has been speaking to you during this Christmas. I don't like the word Christmas season, man, because it, it's, a, it's a Christmas uh, truth. Christmas truth, and truth must be shared. So we need to pray. Father, the story, the true events surrounding Christmas are so rich. And just thankful that we have this opportunity to gather, push the pause button, and remember, reflect, and to contemplate the depth of Jesus' sacrifice, that gift, incredibly costly, nothing more useful it is to be shared. God, in this moment, will your spirit speak to us? Whenever we take a step closer to you in faith, we are always met by love. That is who you are. Christmas is the ultimate expression of that. For that, we are so grateful. It's all possible because of the one that was foretold, that offspring of a woman who would undo the works of Satan ultimately give us eternal life. And his name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.